Thank you, Mike. So um, I think it's clear that if anybody wants to help with sound, we probably need some extra help. We got way too much on Mike over back there. He needs some help back there. So no, thank you, thank you, Mike, for the job you are doing. And um, apologize about the delays there, but uh, we dealt with it well. So thank you guys for your patience. It's all right, Mike. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, no. Um, turn your scripture in your Bibles this morning to John chapter three. John chapter three. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for, <clears throat> for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As the, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come before your word. Thank you for the salvation that is proclaimed in these 21 verses. Lord, I pray as we walk through this passage that we will have a deeper understanding of your salvation, that we will have a deeper understanding of, of what is offered at the cross. God, I pray you would help us to learn from your word today. In your name, amen. amen. We live in dark times, do we not? Um, politics, Wars, poverty, racial tensions, and that's just in the United States. All over the world, the picture is not much better. With times like these, I mean, how, how can we be saved? How can we find salvation in this? Will the right president bring the hope we are seeking? Will more social programs, more interracial dialogue, more military might, more peace talks? 
Well, many of these things certainly are good things. Will they ultimately fix the problem? The ultimate problem is, is that the heart of mankind is deceitful and desperately wicked. The problem is that rather than worship and serve our creator, we would rather worship and serve ourselves. We would rather be the God of our own lives. At root, this is where the problems lie. So all the remedies that we tend to talk about, presidents, programs, dialogue, or whatever, they're merely aspirin designed to cover up the problem, to pretend like the problem doesn't really exist. Really, to point the finger away from ourselves and point to something else as the problem. That's ultimately what these things do. So I ask again, how can we be saved? Is there any hope? As we look in our passage today, we'll see three things. First of all, we must be born spiritually. Second, we'll find that salvation is found in the Son of God. And third, we'll see that salvation brings both love and judgment at the same time. So look back in your Bibles here. Look at the beginning of, of chapter 3. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So just starting here, who is Nicodemus? Now, being a man of the Pharisees, the Pharisees was a religious group in a, a religious group of the Jews in the first century who um, they, they believed that they were more righteous than anybody else. Now, they did believe that it was possible that there would be a resurrection. So they were fair, you see, as opposed to the Sadducees who, re who rejected the idea of a resurrection. They were sad, you see. So, <laughs> seminary jokes. There you go. <laughs> All right. So um, that's how, one of the big differences you can tell between Pharisees and Sadducees, their belief in the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees, they were not really a political group. They were, more of, they were much more of a religious group. The Sadducees tended to be more politically oriented, where the Pharisees were much more religiously oriented. In fact, they loved themselves. They thought they were pretty great. They were the, they were the guys that walked around like, we are so much better than everybody else around here. Jesus tells a parable where a Pharisee walks by and says, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me like these sinners, right? Um, the Pharisees actually, as a religious group, they had, looking through the Old Testament, they had, they had figured out that there were at least 365 laws that needed to be obeyed at all times. And on those laws, in order to make sure that they didn't approach any of those laws or didn't break any of those laws, they would add other laws to those to make sure you never broke the law. So, for example, uh, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day, right? So on, on the day of rest, they were, you know, the, the law said you're not supposed to work. So they had said, well, um, that, well it would be work if you walked more than, more than a mile away from your house. That would be work. So, okay, so how do you make sure you never walk more than a mile away from your house? Not even kidding. They would grab a pile of stones from their house and every mile, they would put a rock down. That's part of my house. They would put a rock down. That's part of my house. So they make sure that they would build laws so they make sure they didn't break the laws. And then they would come up with loopholes to make sure that they could bend those laws. Just this really ridiculous, self-righteous mentality. This idea that we are so great. We are so special because we obey all the laws. And you guys are all a bunch of lawbreakers, and we're awesome, and you're not. So this is kind of the mentality of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as you go through the Gospels, they kind of set themselves up as one of the primary enemies of Jesus. And you can imagine why. Right? Their whole religious structure was based on, we're awesome, and we don't need to repent of anything because we're already perfect. We're already great. And Jesus is saying, you all need to repent. And they're like, how dare you think that? 
So this is kind of the whole, Jesus' whole message kind of butts heads with the Pharisees. However, there are some Pharisees that are interested in what Jesus has to say. And one of these guys is this guy named Nicodemus. Now, as we get to the end of the passage, I'm already going to give it away. Nicodemus doesn't make a profession of faith here. There's no indication that at this point Nicodemus believes in Jesus. However, Nicodemus is mentioned in two other places, both in John 7 and in John 19. In John chapter 7, the the Pharisees and their other religious leaders were getting together to plan how to take Jesus out. And and, uh, Nicodemus pipes up and says, how how can we condemn a man who hasn't even been to trial? And and the Pharisees are like, you must be from Galilee too. You kind of picking on like, oh, you must be one of them. You know, you, you jerk, you know, you're, you're, you're out against us. What's your problem? So um, they kind of mock him or whatever. And then, uh, so you kind of have Nicodemus kind of defending Jesus at that point, which is interesting. It's, it's interesting to say the least. Um, uh, and then in John chapter 19, we find after the crucifixion, when Jesus is being prepared for burial, that Nicodemus is right there helping. With the, with the burial preparations covering Jesus' body and such like that. So it's possible that between John chapter 3 and John chapter 7 or John chapter 19, that Nicodemus had converted to Christ, that he had become a believer. This text isn't clear about it. It doesn't say for certain whether or not Nicodemus ever becomes a believer. However, there is, you can make the argument that he, he did indeed become a believer. So that's Nicodemus. He's, he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. Says in verse two, says this man came to Jesus by night, and then and and said to him, and continues on. Now, why did he come by night? Uh, most likely, he came by night because of secrecy. He didn't want his other Pharisee friends to know that he was going to talk to Jesus. Especially if you if you look at the way uh, his initial question to Jesus is, I mean, it, he's kind of interested. You know, he's not he's not just coming to be like. Oh, you know, show me something to prove yourself. It, it kind of is that, but it's, it's a little bit more interested, at, at least at the beginning of this. Look at this. He says, he comes by night and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he recognizes there is some kind of authority that Jesus has. We talked about authority last week. We, we recognize there's some kind of authority that Jesus has. He calls him a rabbi. Which is, it's, a, it's, a, it's calling him teacher. It was a, it was a, a term that was a, a term of respect to a, a respected teacher. And, a, and even more so for somebody of his position and his stature, probably an older man to go to 30-something-year-old Jesus and call him rabbi, you know, teacher, uh, professor, if you will. Right? He gives this term of respect, and he says, and he, he says we, we know that you're a teacher to come from God because you're doing these miracles, you're doing this stuff, and nobody else does this unless they're coming from God. So he, he recognizes there's some aspect. Now, he's not suggesting that he believes that Jesus is the divine son of God. He just believes that there's something about his ministry that God is in the midst of. Um, so we can't read too much into that and, and assume that right here he's affirming something about Jesus that he's not. So we need to be careful about that. Um, in, implied in his statement here, it's not really a question, but implied in that is kind of this question, then who are you? Kind of like what, what in, in John chapter 1, when the, when the rulers and these different, uh, the Levites, they came to John and they asked him, who are you? Who, who, you, know, are, you the, are you the Christ? Are you a prophet? What, what, what's going on? Who are you? It's very similar kind of, this statement kind of has this implied question. We know that you come from God, so who are you? 
right? So Nicodemus is kind of asking this question. Jesus recognizes exactly what's going on, as Jesus usually does. He gets, he's given a question, then he kind of answers it with something that was really on their heart, not really what they actually asked. So Jesus perceptively understands exactly what he's going for. In verse 3, he answered to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This phrase, born again, it's got a kind of a dual meaning. It means uh, born again, or it can also mean born from above. So it has this, this kind of twofold meaning. Now, most likely, Jesus probably meant it both ways, like to understand it both, born again and born from above. However, as we see, Nicodemus only understands the one meaning of born again. He doesn't, he doesn't catch the other, the other side of it. He doesn't catch the dual meaning there. He just catches the fact that he's saying to be born again. Um, so... Uh, so there's there's that. So the, the look how so he says unless you're uh, born again or born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this shocked Nicodemus, right? He heard this and was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Look at the question he asked in the verse four. Says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now he takes it really literally, right? He, he, he takes this to be a very literal statement that you have to be born again. Now, he probably wasn't so stupid as to believe that, that, was, that, that he just meant this literal idea. Probably a little bit of sarcasm in here, like, oh, yeah, Jesus, come on. Make sense of this one, right? How's that going to work? I'm an old guy. You know, how am I going to get back to my mom's womb and, and, and be born again? That, that's, that's a ridiculous idea. Right? But there's, there's probably also in his mind, remember, he's a teacher of the people of Israel. He's a, he's a master of the law. He's a master of the scriptures. Right? That's, that's kind of his position. He's the guy. People come to him and, they, and he teaches them. Um, he, he probably heard this and he's like, what are you even talking about? This born again idea and that's how you get into the kingdom of heaven. How does that even work? What does it even look like? He's this category of being born again as this exclusive entrance into the kingdom of God, this exclusive direction, this exclusive way of entering the kingdom of God that was completely foreign to Nicodemus. In his mind, the way you get to God, the way you are a part of the kingdom of God is by being obedient to the rules and regulations that you see in the Old Testament. By making sure that you are better than everybody else and you are more holy and more righteous and more obedient than anybody else. And that's how you guarantee your way into heaven. A very workspace salvation. So he hears this category of, of, of being born again and he's, he's kind of like, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense to him. He could not believe that there's a new birth requirement required for entrance into the kingdom. Now, Jesus responds here. Um, and this, this, Jesus' response here is really interesting. Because on first reading of it, you might be like, what are you talking about? What are you getting at? Now, what Jesus is doing here, I really feel like, I understand. As I studied this this week and as I really kind of dug into this, I came more and more to believe that what Jesus is doing here is he is summarizing Ezekiel 36 and 37. And I'll show you what I mean by that, but he's kind of, he's kind of, it's kind of a mini sermon on this is what Ezekiel 36 and 37 was. Let's look at what Jesus says, and then we'll turn, uh, while, while we're looking at that, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, uh, to the end of the chapter of 36, and we'll look at those two chapters and kind of see how Jesus is, is looking at this. Um, Jesus answered in verse 5 of John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, there's two really, really important theological points being made in these two chapters. Now, most times you may not hear like, hey, really important theology thing. Go to the book of Ezekiel, right? There's some really important stuff going on here. Check this out. In Ezekiel chapter 37, let's start, um, let's start in verse uh, 22. Let's start in verse 22. <clears throat> this is God uh, speaking to Ezekiel here. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus say to the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. To which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. When through you uh, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unrighteousness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And check this out. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put, in, put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, or from, yeah, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So just stopping right there, Jesus has said, told him, told, told Nicodemus, says, you must be born of spirit and of, of water and spirit. Unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. So this idea here, he's, I, I, as I have understood this, and I've been studying this, this idea of being born of the spirit, he's referring to this idea of, of exchanging the heart of stone for a heart of flesh, which according to this passage involves repentance, Right? This is repent from your sins. You are doing evil against the Lord God. You need to repent of your sins and I will take out your heart of stone and put within you a heart of flesh and you will be my people and you will obey my statutes, right? So God here is, it's this, this idea of being born of the spirit is this, this spiritual change that takes place in conversion. And, and ultimately this is fulfilled when you become a believer in Jesus Christ. This is what takes place. God removes your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. There's that exchange that takes place. This birth in the spirit. But he says then again, and he also used this phrase earlier about being born again. So where does that come from? Now check this out in verse 37. So God has just told uh, uh, Ezekiel that he needs to tell the people about this conversion and then and they're going to give him a new, a new heart of flesh. And then in chapter 37, this kind of thing continues and, and Ezekiel has this vision here, this, this experience that he has, um, this opportunity to see what the work of God looks like, what the work of salvation looks like. Check this out in verse 37 or chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were many of, there were many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. Are the people that are these bones here, are they dead? 
They're very dry. They've been there for a long time. They're very, 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 very dead. Right? Um, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Ezekiel saying, oh, Lord, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these dry bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you or muscle tissue and will cause flesh to come upon you, skin, and cover you with skin and, and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, God says, tell these bones that they're going to live again. Tell these dry bones that they're going to live Continuing on, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. Have you heard the song, this bone's connected to the, yeah, that bone? It's from this passage. It really is. That's where the song came from, was from this passage. It was a teaching, teaching children this passage, yep. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain and they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. So what does that have to do with Jesus talking about being born of the flesh, being born of the spirit, all this stuff? One, there's a linguistic connection. The word in Hebrew for the word, the, the word spirit and breath and wind, it's the same Hebrew word. Same in the Greek. In the, in the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. In the Greek, which was the New, what the New Testament was originally written in, the same Greek word is the word for spirit and for wind or breath. The same words are being used. So in other words, the, the word that we, that we use, that the, the New Testament uses for spirit or for or for breath is the same is the same word as what's used in the Hebrew, and and so if you see in this Ezekiel passage, he talks about how this breath is going to fill them, or this spirit is going to fill them, or the Holy Spirit is going to fill them, right? And they're going to come alive. It's but it, it's not until the breath enters them that they come alive, right? At first, the 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 dry bones they get flesh, they get they get they get muscle tissue, their their bodies now but they don't have any breath in them. And it's not until the wind, the breath, the spirit enters into them that they have life. Now we go back to what Jesus says. And he says, uh, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right? And what he had said before, you must be born again. I think I would probably go ahead and say that those dry bones were born again. Right? They were now had new life in them. Now look at this. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. It's that same word, the spirit, the wind. And just what he had, what he had said in Ezekiel, to prophesy to the wind, and the wind came from the four corners and blew over the people. He's, I really feel, like he, I believe that, he, that Jesus here is, is kind of explaining Ezekiel 37 to Nicodemus, saying this is, he's, he's trying to help him understand this. And I think that's, that's further uh, shown by the next passage here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, back to John 3, but you do not know where it comes from, or, from, or, or, or uh, where it comes from, or where it goes. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus uses this illustration to explain the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? That the Holy Spirit blows on who it will. Right? Salvation comes in God's will. Right? The Holy Spirit is the, is the of the Trinitarian Godhead. The Holy Spirit draws people to salvation. So as the word of God is preached, as the word of God is heard, the Holy Spirit tugs on people's hearts, pulls them and draws them forward. Right? And what our, our, our point, what we do in salvation is say, okay, is essentially all, I mean, we don't save ourselves. We don't, we don't, we don't provide our own salvation. That's, it's, it's something that Jesus does for us, that the, the Father does through the Son in the work of the Spirit. Right? This is an action of God. Our response is one of releasing our will to his. Right? So that we do require a response. There is a response that we must have to the gospel, but it's very minimal. We don't save ourselves. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that, well, on such and such a day, I, got, I, I saved myself that day. No, God saved me. Amen. Right? So this is, this is Jesus is teaching about the Holy Spirit. He's teaching about salvation. He's teaching about this birth, this new birth is not a physical rebirth. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's, a, it's receiving this new heart of flesh instead of the, and, and trading it out from the heart of stone. He uses this analogy between spirit and wind to explain that. So as we pause and reflect on this idea that, that uh, we must be born spiritually, two things come to mind as we reflect on that. Salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit on our spirit. Right? That's something we need to understand as believers. This is, if, if we are a believer, we, we need to understand that it was not us that saved us. It was the Holy Spirit that saved us, that drew us to salvation. Secondly, much like Nicodemus came to Jesus with his own conditions of what it means to be saved, right? He has his own ideas of what it means to, be, what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is shaking all of that up right here. And so the second thing we see from this, salvation is not based on our conditions, right? We don't decide how salvation happens. We don't say, you know, well, well you, can, you can be a Christian if you, you know, dress a certain way, listen to the right music, do this, then you'll be okay. Come to the right church, right? Uh, do everything just like I want to make sure you do it, right? And then that's how you get saved, right? We don't control that. That's, that's, a, that's a work of the Lord. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, not, not a work of us. It's not our conditions that bring salvation. So moving to the next paragraph here. Salvation is found in the Son of God. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Or really more accurately, he says, how can this happen? Right? At this point, Nicodemus is being dense. Right? He's, Jesus just explained to him how this is all possible and how this all happens. And he goes, well, how can that happen? Right? Well, tell me how it can happen. And you, you, you kind of, you might want to say, well, maybe he's just stupid. But that would be ridiculous because he's, he's an intelligent guy. He's a leader in the people, of the people of Israel. And Jesus even kind of, the way Jesus responds to him is like, you should know better than this. Like, don't play dumb with me, right? It's kind of what, how Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? He calls him the teacher. Aren't you like an important guy? Don't you know the law? Don't you know the Bible? Aren't you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? This is kind of why I think he's, he's, he's drawing this, this, this idea from all over the Old Testament, most likely, for, for sure. But especially in Ezekiel 36 and 37, he's like, haven't you read your Bible? 
This should not be surprising to you. This idea that you need to repent of your sins and in order to, re- uh, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that, that should not be a foreign idea to you. That's all over the Old Testament. How do you not get this? You, the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say unto you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus's problem here is not that he had a lack of understanding or that somehow something was missing or that he couldn't get it. What really the ultimate problem here, what Jesus points out is just, you just don't want to believe. You don't believe that I'm the son of God. You don't believe that I'm who I say I am. You don't trust me as the son of God. That's the point. That's it. He's like, you don't receive our testimony. You just don't believe. It has nothing to do with your inability to understand what I'm trying to tell you. It's just that you're obstinate and you refuse to believe. And look at this. So Jesus continues on here. He says, if I had told you earthly things, how can, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Like I told you about this born again stuff, right? That's something we do here on this earth. How in the world can I tell you other things, greater things about the kingdom of God at large? You wouldn't understand. You can't even understand the basic entry point into the kingdom of God. How in the world can I teach you deeper things about the kingdom of God? Right? And so, so he, Jesus is kind of, it's kind of a rebuke here. Right? He's, what are you thinking? How, how do you not know this stuff? And then he, he continues to explain to him. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. In other words, he's saying, no one knows about heaven. No one can tell you anything about heaven. No one can give you a full understanding of what heaven is like, what the kingdom of heaven is like, what his kingdom is like, except for the one who's been there, and that's me. Not me, Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, I'm the one who, I've been there. I'm the son of God. That's me. I'm the only one who can explain this. If you want to know how to enter the kingdom of heaven, I'm the only guy you've got. I'm the only option you have. Sounds like an exclusive claim, doesn't it? Right? I'm it. That's it. Verse 14, and this comes from the passage we read today uh, that Mike read for us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What Jesus says is essentially, if you look, remember that passage in Numbers 21, the people were bitten by snakes, and in order to receive salvation from these snake bites, Moses lifted up a bronze serpent. And if they looked at the serpent, then they would be saved and they would be healed. Now, we do know later about that bronze serpent, just as a tidbit. Later, that bronze serpent became an idol and ultimately could not bring salvation. It became an idol that actually brought the people down and had to be destroyed. However, what Jesus is saying is just like that serpent had to be lifted up and people had to look to that serpent to, to, uh, to have their salvation, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm going to have to do the same thing. And that's how people are going to find salvation is when the Son of Man is lifted up. Now, again, Jesus here is, is, pro, is, is really, this, this, in using this phrasing, lifted up, this comes with a whole Old Testament theology uh, of, 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 uh, of this kind of combination idea of, of both um, suffering and glory, and glory all at the same time, suffering and glorification. If you, in, in Isaiah... Uh, 52 and 53, these song, this song about the suffering servant. You get this, this idea of the servant who is exalted and he is glorified. And then in, in, in chapter 52, and then right in 53, this same servant who is exalted and glorified is killed and suffering. 
Right, so this idea of suffering and glorification. So Jesus, in saying that, it's not just referring to his crucifixion, though it is. It's not just referring to his resurrection, though it is. It's not just referring to his ascension and his return to glory and his seated, being seated at the right hand of the Father. It's all of it. Saying the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. So it's not just the cross or just the resurrection or just the fact that he's in glory. It's all of it. This is what we believe. And if you look on that, that's where you'll find salvation. If you believe that about Jesus, that he died, he rose from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that's where we'll find salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen. That's where salvation is found. It's only found in the Son of God. Amen. <clears throat> Last thing we look at here is, is uh, salvation brings both love and judgment. This right here, um, in moving into this next section, um, I, you, uh, there's no quotation marks in the original Greek. Just, just pause there for a second. Okay? There's no quotation marks in the original Greek. Now, most of your translations probably have the quotation marks at the end of verse 21. Most likely, 16 through 21 is actually John commenting on this idea of salvation being found in the Son of God. So this is actually... The, the, John, the writer, is explaining something about, 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 the, about the previous passage. So when he, when he starts in John 3.16, Jesus is not saying this. This is John's commentary on this. Now, why we say that, this is, I mean, it, it's not a super significant point, but it does help us understand what's going on and, and what, how the text is flowing. It says that, for, it, you know, we, we know the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We might glance over that because we know it so well. Jesus almost never refers to, the, refers to God the Father as God. He refers to him as my Father. So it would be really strange for him here to say, for God so loved the world. Because he doesn't use that language. John does. John will talk about God as being God and talk about God the Father and refer to him with just the title God. And oh, Jesus doesn't do that. Further, Jesus doesn't refer to himself as the, only, as the only begotten son. He doesn't. He usually refers to himself as the son of man. John has already referred to Jesus as the only begotten son in John chapter 1. And here he does it again. So it's, it's, it's things like that that, that, that cause the thing. The quotation marks probably ended. The, the conversation with Nicodemus probably ends in verse 15 and 16 through 21 is kind of John's commentary on, on the rest of this. So just to kind of help you get your bearings on what's going on here and, and make sure you, you know, help you understand it. Jesus probably didn't say this. That doesn't mean it's less scripture, right? Red letters or not, it's still scripture, right? But this is, so this is, this is John helping us understand what's going on in the passage here. So jumping into verse 16, you all probably know this verse and could say it out loud with me. For God so loved the world. You don't have to, just so you make it clear. You don't have to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here we have the love of God proclaimed. Now a couple things about this passage that we need to understand. First of all, this idea, this is, this is for God so loved. This word so uh, does not mean like God loved us a whole lot. This word that's for here for so is the word thus or for this reason or, or, or in this way. So it's God loved us this way. This is how God loved us. In other words, this word love, this is an action. God does something. He's, this is how God shows his love. I, I, I like to use the illustration. Love is, 
uh, that, that love is an, is an action. It's not an emotion. It's not that God was you know, having his overflow of an emotion. It was he loved us, and so he acted. It would be like uh, with my wife. If I was to tell her, oh, I just love you. I love you so much. I love you. And she would appreciate that, right? But if I never helped with the dishes, right, never helped with the chores, never helped with the baby, never showed her I loved her, how long is she going to believe my statement? She's not, right? Every wife said, amen. <laughs> right? You're, it's not, you're not going to believe it. There's no action behind it. So, so what's more important is the action. Yes, both guys. Don't tell your wives that Justin said I don't have to say I love you anymore. Yes, you do. Right? You absolutely need to tell your wife that you love her. But you also need to show her that you love her. And so God here, he shows us how he, he loved, for God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. This is how God loves the world. This is how he loves all people. This is what he does, that he gave his only begotten son. The words there, uh, that your, your translations may something like only or one and only. Uh, I love English translations a lot of times. However, they some, they, sometimes they'll miss some really important theology Phrases monogenes weos, only begotten son. This this only begotten son. This this idea of being the only begotten son. It is a it is a description of the relationship that the father and the son have. This is their eternal relationship. Is that the son is begotten from the father? It's not just like he's he's his only baby, right? Like Curtis is my only son. It's not the same thing. Curtis doesn't come from my essence in the same way. He's not begotten from me in the same way that the Father and the Son, that the God the Son is begotten from God the Father. So there's a description of relationship in this phrase, only begotten. So God, uh, there is only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now there's the love aspect, right? And usually we like to stop there when we say, oh, this is all about love, right? And judgment we don't kind of distance those two things. Love and judgment, those are, those are separate things. And we like to say, you, know, you, can, you don't judge. Don't judge me, right? Sorry, God does judge you, <laughs> right? God does, he's a good judge and he can do that. But look at this. And so this idea of, of both love and judgment are brought together at the cross. What we tend to separate from one another, even separate them from the event of the cross, God actually brings those together. All of his attributes come together at the cross and, and even love and judgment. This is what this passage goes with, Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The purpose of sending the son of God was not to just tell everybody, oh, you're all going to hell, right? That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to save. The purpose was to bring salvation. However, if we keep going in verse 18, we see that, the, that giving, bringing his salvation also has, a, has another thing here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It is a dangerous thing to not believe in Jesus, to not give your faith and trust to Jesus. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. So this is, this is why this all takes place. This is what, what this is talking about. What does this mean? It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. We saw in John chapter 1, this is talking about Christ. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. 
The light came into the world, showed us the way to salvation, showed us here that we must have life by being born again, by giving our lives to Christ, by giving him our worship. And instead, what do we do? We would rather have the darkness than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Why don't people want to be saved? Why, why might you today, if you're sitting here and you say, oh, I don't want that, I don't want that. This is saying right here, because you don't want to be exposed. You don't want anybody to know, you don't even want to know about it yourself, that you're evil and that you are a sinner. The object of the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath. That's how we are born. We are born, zeroed in God with his, in, his, in his holy, righteous wrath. We are the very objects. We are in the crosshairs of his holy and righteous wrath. Because of the cross, we have the opportunity for salvation. Amen. And Christ takes on that wrath on the cross. So that that wrath is no longer aimed at us. If we believe in Jesus Christ, if we give him our faith, give him our trust, that aim is no longer aimed at us. It's more on Christ. The only one who never deserved it. The only one who is not by nature a child of wrath. Took on the wrath for you and for me. Amen. But whoever does what is true... In other words, whoever believes what is true, whoever believes the truth, whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. If you're a believer, what are you afraid of? Part of becoming a Christian, part of our confession is that I know I'm a sinner. I don't have to hide that from anybody. I'm here today because I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wicked. I know I'm evil. I know that I deserve God's wrath. I'm here today to tell you guys, I'm a sinner. I know that. And Christ is taking care of it. That has nothing to do with me. That has everything to do with him. Amen. Amen. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen. Might we come to the light because we want it to be seen. We show this to me. Show me that I'm a sinner. Because I know I am. So I'd be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This phrase here that his works might be carried out in God is probably better translated as this, is, this work was accomplished by God. This work wasn't done by me. My salvation was not done by me. We've already seen that clearly. I can't be born again. I can't rebirth myself. I can't. I'm, I'm, I was dry bones. I can't, as dry bones, put myself back together. The hip bone connected to the leg bone. And all that. I, I can't do that. I can't put tissue back on me. I can't put skin back on me. God does that. And even then, I'd be a corpse. And I don't have any life unless it's breathed into me by God himself. Friend, if you are a Christian today, rejoice in the fact that God has brought you to life. What a wonderful truth. Two thoughts closing out. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you haven't given your faith and trust in Christ, you've heard, you're hearing this, you're like, I don't, I don't have that salvation. Maybe you're, maybe you're came here kind of like Nicodemus and thinking, how is it even possible? Where is there salvation? This whole world is pointless. There's no hope here. How can I find any hope? 
Here it is. It's Jesus Christ. Putting our faith and trust in him because he is the one who can save us because he's the son of God. If you're a Christian here today, I know most Christians, when you hear a salvation message, you might tune out and say, that's not for me. I'm already a Christian. This message is actually for you. I hope that you grew deeper in your knowledge of the salvation that you have. I hope you learn more about that. Maybe you learn more about this passage. I hope you grew deeper in your knowledge of, this, of the scriptures and, and then therefore grew deeper in love with the text of scripture. It is selfish and self-serving to believe that, that there's a part of God's word that's not for you. If you saw, oh, we're doing John 3, 16 today, I don't even know that. I've heard that a thousand times. Can I tell you and be honest with you, that's probably the most selfish thing you could have thought today. That's not for me. Dear Christian, I hope that this message gave you a renewed love for the scriptures and for the salvation that you have in Christ. I hope that your renewed love will then draw you and will, will, will draw you to tell others about this great love. It should overflow us and we should be using that overflow to tell others about Christ. As we conclude today, we cannot find hope in a presidential candidate. That should be abundantly clear this year. Amen. <laughs> we can't find hope in mere social change. We can't find hope in weapons or in diplomacy. But we do have hope. Our hope is found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can truly save us from the real problem of our sin and wickedness. So we move into a time of invitation.